Hello, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of Meet, Act, and Part. We're your hosts. I'm Greg Knott. I'm Darren Laners. I'm Todd Creason. And we are very excited today to have Steve Harrison joining us. Steve is a fellow Midnight Freemason out of the great state of Missouri. And Steve, why don't you introduce yourself in regards to your Masonic background and how you got involved in Freemasonry to begin with? Sure. It's great to be here, by the way. My uh, my dad was a Freemason, and so I kind of saw his activities. And through him, uh, he encouraged me to join Demolay, which I did. And I really uh, was very active in Demolay. Uh, loved the organization. And once I reached maturity and went on to college, it only took me about another 30 years to join Freemasonry, but I finally got around to it. I became a member in 1999. I was master of my lodge in 2003. And sometime a couple years after that, they tapped me to become the editor of the Missouri Freemason magazine, which I did for a decade. And that kept me pretty busy. And during that time as the editor, they then asked me into the advancing line of the Missouri Lodge of Research, which uh, I became master of that in 2013. And today in the Missouri Lodge of Research, I guess you would say I'm sort of the unofficial editor. And then somewhere along the line in the middle of when I was writing my second book, I was posting some things online about it and I got a communication from Todd, Todd Creason, on your panel, and he asked me to join the Midnight Freemasons, and so I've been a member uh, of that group ever since. Steve, what got you uh, interested in Masonic history and research? Well, I had been a writer, and uh, at the time I was editing the Missouri Freemason magazine. Uh, I had just become editor, and the Grand Master at the time was a guy by the name of Bob Berger. And uh, he was here in my area. We were at event, an event in the Kansas City Scottish Rite, and he pulled me aside and asked me if I would write an article about the Green Tree Tavern, which we have now completely determined was the first lodge hall in what eventually would become uh, the state of Missouri. We had a long conversation about it, and the more we talked, the more I realized that just the founding or just the existence of that first meeting place in Missouri was only the beginning of the story. And I remember telling him right there, hey, what we're talking about here could be a book. And that one thing led to another, and that's where my first book came about, and that was my first writing really on history and also on uh, Freemasonry. So that discussion led to my book, Freemasonry Crosses the Mississippi. That was the origin of it right there. Steve, not only have you written Freemasonry Crosses the Missouri, but you've also written a book regarding Oak Island as well as Tales from the Craft, correct? Right. And then your latest work are the, the two volumes that you've done along with the Missouri Lodge of Research on Denslow. That's the latest thing I've done, yes. 
Uh, for those who don't know who Denslow is, can you give maybe a brief introduction of his Masonic background, why he's an important figure in Freemasonry? With Denslow, I'm not sure I can do it as a brief introduction. It won't be too brief, but I, I can kind of go through some of the things he did as a Freemason that, that makes him so important. He was born in 1885. And he lived to be the age of 75. Very interesting. His father and his grandfather were both Freemasons. And so he was very familiar with the fraternity as he grew up. So he was so anxious to become a Freemason that he was initiated on March 6, 1906 at midnight. And it was his 21st birthday. He was so excited about becoming a Freemason, he was initiated literally at the first minute that he was eligible to join. On his career here in Missouri, uh, he was our Grand Master in 1931 and 32. He was a 33rd degree uh, Scottish Rite Mason, and probably what we would consider the highest office that he held was a general grand chapter high priest, which he uh, held during the war years. Denslow was pretty much a member of anything you can name. In the first volume of the books that we've done on Denslow, we listed all of his memberships, and those memberships, which included honorary memberships and everything we could come up with, took six pages in the book. There was a man that was a contemporary of Denslow by the name of George Marquis, and he once said, Ray Denslow is a promiscuous joiner. And uh, that he was. And the thing is, he was pretty active in all of those groups, most of them that he was a member of. He just was going all the time. Denslow was a founding member of the Missouri Lodge of Research. He was our second master and the first fellow of the Missouri Lodge of Research. And I should point out, the second fellow of the Missouri Lodge of Research was his son, William Denslow, who was the author of 10,000 Famous Freemasons. So it was quite a Masonic family. As I said, his highest office was General Grand High Priest of the General Grand Chapter, which he held from 1942 to 1946. And something interesting about that, and it also shows how active he was in all of these groups, at the same time that he was uh, the General Grand High Priest, one of those years he was also the national head of the Red Cross of Constantine. As I say, he was a pretty busy guy. Denslow wrote 22 books, 75 pamphlets, some of which were just about book size. Uh, of course, he was a prolific writer of magazine articles. During his active years as a Mason, he handled all and produced all of the proceedings here in the, uh, Missouri. And from time to time, he would sit down and write people's speeches for them. He was quite a writer. Some of the things he wrote, well, 
I can't, I can't go through everything you wrote, but, uh, one important thing that I could highlight was that he was the author of Territorial Freemasonry, which, uh, covered, uh, the probably late 1700s, early 1800s, up to the time of the formation of the Grand Lodge of Missouri. And, uh, that book was, uh, one of the main references that I had for my first book, Freemasonry Crosses the Mississippi. I also found it interesting that uh, another thing that he was a co-author of was a three-volume set, The History of Royal Arch Masonry. He wrote it with a uh, brother by the name of Everett R. Turnbull. And I have noticed uh, recently, and I don't know when this happened, that the Royal Arch now has a fourth volume uh, to that set. So it is a, it's a living work, which apparently they are continuing to update. But he was just probably, you could probably make a case that he was just about the most prolific Masonic author we have ever had. When we were working on the books, the two-volume set of his memoirs, his grandson, William Denslow, uh, and his granddaughter, uh, Judy Erickson Denslow, were also involved in that project. So I didn't meet Judy until about a year into the project, but Bill Jr. actually flew out here to meet with us, and when he made that first trip out, I asked him, he is one of the last living people that had any kind of a real relationship with Ray Denslow. And I asked him, I said, give me some insight here. What, what was the guy like? And the, the only answer really that Bill could come up with was he said he was always at his typewriter. And when you see everything that he published and produced, uh, you have to believe that, that particular thing about him. One of his main things that he did was he was the founder and editor of the Royal Arch Mason magazine, which he founded in 1943, and he edited the magazine and published it until his death in 1960, at which time his son William took over. And Denslow said he considered that to be his most important contribution to Freemasonry, but I think he may have had one or two more that were almost just as as important. When I started the project, I started going through our proceedings and things like that just to get some education about Denslow, and I ran into uh, some contributions that came along to us about the time or right after his death, after he had passed away. And uh, this was before I knew as much as I do now about Denslow, and I was just amazed at the number of condolences that came in to our Grand Lodge from all over the world. You name a country, if it had Freemasonry in it, uh, they sent their condolences. And it wasn't always just from the Grand Lodge. It was from individuals, too. We were just deluged with this, and that alone told me what an impact his death had on Freemasonry. One of the condolences that I ran into was a letter 
from Harry Truman. Truman uh, was a good friend of Denslow. Uh, He died in 1960, so this was after Harry Truman had been president. But he was in New York at the time Denslow died, and he could not make it back for the funeral. So he wrote William Denslow a letter, and in that letter he said, Ray Denslow was one of the best friends I ever had in the world. And I can almost make a case that Denslow very well may have been his best friend. Denslow was a Republican. Truman was a Democrat, as we all know. And yet they were very close. And on several occasions, when they were together with a crowd, Truman would introduce Denslow as my damned Republican friend. Uh, Truman also, actually I believe in that letter, said that Denslow was the greatest authority in the world on international Freemasonry. And that is borne out by a project that Denslow started in 1932. He started collecting uh, correspondence from Masonic Grand Lodges and Masonic Lodges all over the world. And he would take all of those correspondences and he put them together in a booklet that he called the Masonic World. And then he distributed it back throughout the world of Freemasonry. And it was very well received. There were a lot of places in the world that didn't have quite the Masonic publications that we at the time had in the United States or even have now. So he did that from 1932 to 1960. And I think the real significance of that was during that time, we had the time before World War II when Masonic lodges in Europe began to be dismantled, and he documented all of that. And then he documented everything after World War II that we did to uh, reconstruct Freemasonry in Europe. That is the only real source that we have on that information, or certainly the only real source where it is compiled into one document or one series of documents. Denslow made four trips to Europe. Uh, in 1936, he was a representative of the Grand Lodge of Missouri for the Scotland Bicentennial, where there he met with the Duke of York, uh, who was installed at the time as the Grand Master of Great Britain. And then uh, shortly after Denslow got back, he was the King of England. And also on that trip, we know he had dinner with King Gustav of Sweden on these trips that he made to Europe. He met some very important people and made some very important friends. He went back in 1945 and 1949 to report on the progress of the reconstruction after the war and then one final trip in 1956. He did all that. He continued it almost right up until the day he died. 
And on top of everything else he did, uh, he would go home at night and he would write, I, I wouldn't call it a diary. It was, this is where his memoirs came from. He would write about the events that were going on in Freemasonry at the time and make comments on them. And we wound up with four volumes, four binders of uh, those notes that Denslow made. And uh, that, of course, is we transcribed that into uh, the books that we've now published on his life. I'm sorry I uh, went on so long, but that that's about as quickly as I can go through Denslow's life and how really important and significant he was to Freemasonry. Steve, let me uh, ask you, why does he matter today? Here's a guy that's been gone for 50 years, 60 years. The two volumes you did, you've just done here in 2020, 2019 and 18. Why, why is he still important to Freemasonry today? In other words, what's his legacy that we can learn from? Well, I think much of his legacy is his writings. Uh, of course, he's, he's not around to continue doing the things he was doing. So, Greg, you're correct. We have to look at his legacy. And that legacy lies in the books that he wrote and the articles that he wrote. And, of course, in the fact that the Royal Arch Mason magazine is still around. You guys, if you're in the Royal Arch, you've probably got a copy right now sitting on your... Uh, living room table. And I think, too, just knowing what this man did for Freemasonry, just knowing about that, uh, if nothing else, is an inspiration. So that pretty much is what uh, what his legacy, I think, today would be. Did I, did I co- accomplish that? Steve, the Missouri Lodge of Research has a fascinating history, and I was hoping that maybe you could give us some background on the formation of the Lodge of Research and what your role in it is now and what it's been in the past. Well, the Missouri Lodge of Research was founded in 1927 as the Missouri Masonic Research Council. And it operated as such until, uh, well, they made an attempt in 1938 to have it become a, an actual Lodge of Research and for whatever reason, people at the uh, Grand Lodge communication voted that down. I'm not sure why, except, you know, maybe they just didn't want one of those newfangled Lodge of Researchers around. So the guys that were trying to form the Lodge of Research went dormant in 39. And then in 1940, uh, Harry Truman was the Grand Master of Missouri. They certainly had his support. And with that, uh, they were able to push it through, and they passed the bylaws that we could form a Lodge of Research. So technically, the Lodge of Research as a Lodge was founded in 1941, and of course, uh, Harry uh, Truman was one of the uh, founding members, as was uh, Ray Denslow. Up till today, today we we sponsor a lot of activities as a Lodge of Research. Twice a year, we sponsor a Truman Lecture, where we have, I guess, what I would call world-class Freemasons come in 
and talk about whatever subject uh, they're an expert in. That particular thing, especially at our Grand Lodge, is probably the most popular event. We have a breakfast on the final day of the Grand Lodge in a, a room that we fill that probably holds about 200 people. So that's a twice a year thing. We also sponsor the Masonic Library and Masonic Museum in Columbia. And if you're ever in Columbia, that's definitely uh, something you might want to stop by and see at our Masonic complex there where uh, the Grand Lodge has its offices. Every year, the Missouri Lodge of Research produces a book, most times written by a member of the Missouri Lodge of Research. We publish it, and then um, each member gets a copy of that book at no charge. Uh, the dues to the Missouri Lodge of Research are $25, and with the quality of the books that we've been giving out, I would say that's quite a bar- bargain. And I'll just give it a plug and say you don't have to be a member of Missouri Freemasonry to be a member of the Missouri Lodge of Research. I probably uh, was asked to come into the line, I don't know, two, 2007, eight thereabouts, and I was the uh, master of the Missouri Lodge of Research in 2013-2014. And I'm out of office now, of course, but I sort of serve as the unofficial editor of the Lodge of Research. And I would point out, I'm a fellow of the Lodge of Research, but so is the guy who asked this question. Todd became our latest uh, fellow of the Missouri Lodge of Research in 2015, I believe it was, and... uh they, we don't have, I think we only have 14 or 15 fellows. Steve, I know Denslow was a popular figure, but he also was a polarizing one. He didn't always see eye to eye with uh, some other Masonic contemporaries of his time. Can you go into that? Denslow was a very opinionated guy. And you're right. If he, if he had a negative opinion of somebody, uh, he did not hesitate to give it. And, of course, the big story, and a lot of people know this story about Denslow, was that he got into, I guess you would call, a bit of a feud with a guy by the name of John Cowles. John Cowles was, at the time, the head of the Scottish Rite Southern Jurisdiction, and Denslow got it in his mind that John Cowles was sort of passing out honors uh, in the southern jurisdiction, that would be the KCCH and the 33rd degree, that he was sort of giving those out in return for favors. And Denslow made a, a big stink about that, and the two, I was going to say, drifted apart. They They really went at it. And the uh, bottom line on all of that was that eventually the Scottish Rite Southern Jurisdiction revoked Ray Denslow's 33rd degree. And uh, when you hear this story told, the way you will hear it 
kind of a bull session type thing, you'll hear it told this way, that Ray Denslow lost his 33rd degree, and then Harry Truman became president of the United States, and the southern jurisdiction wanted to give Harry Truman as president the 33rd degree, and Truman said, I won't take the 33rd degree until you give Ray Denslow back his 33rd degree. Well, there's there's truth in that, and and that happened. Uh, and as an aside, I think if that doesn't show what a great friend Harry Truman was of Ray Denslow, I don't know what would. So that's the way it's told in bowl sessions and sitting around at dinner and things like that. But nobody ever tells the entire story. And to think that that is the full story, you you just kind of have to have a little common sense and say, well, wait a minute. First of all, John Cowles was uh, an honorable guy. He was so revered by the Scottish Rite that he is buried next to Albert Pike in the House of the Temple. And the Scottish Rite itself doesn't just yank people's 33rd degrees because it's a lot of fun to do. So what did Denslow do to have his 33rd degree taken away? Now, this whole story is in the two volumes that we produced of his memoirs. But it's scattered here and there through the books. And, you know, so you've kind of got to wade through 800 pages of material to get the entire story. So what I did was I pulled everything I had about that story, including what Denslow did and everything else that happened, and I put it together in an article that I submitted to the Missouri Freemason Magazine. I didn't just email it in to the editor. I happened to be at a place where uh, the editor and I were at the same meeting, and so I talked to him about it, and I said, look, This story is hot stuff. This story is not, it does not represent Freemasonry's finest hour on either side. So what I, please look it over. And if you think we should not publish that article, I am not going to be hurt one bit. So the editor, Dave Haywood is his name. He looked it over. He said he liked the article. And he planned to put it in the magazine. That was that. And then after this was all settled, about two weeks passed, and I got a call from the Grand Master. And ever since I was no longer the editor of the Freemason magazine, I don't get too many calls from the Grand Master. And uh, the Grand Master told me he liked the article. And then he told me we could not possibly publish it. So it was yanked from the magazine, and uh, I thought it was a good story. So I set about revising it, toned it down a little bit, and I put one of those disclaimers in there that you know what they're like. Uh, this article is not necessarily endorsed by the Grand Lodge of Missouri or the Missouri Lodge of Research or God or anybody else, so that we covered our base that way. And then by that time, there was a new Grand Master. So I I met with him, and he went over it and decided, yes, I think we can publish this. 
So that's where it stood for a while. And then I got to thinking about it because the Denslows were involved with us. That is Bill Denslow and Judy Denslow Erickson, Ray Denslow's grandchildren. They were involved with us on this uh, project with the books from day one. And in fact, at our last Grand Lodge meeting, uh, they came and they made their own presentation uh, about Denslow as well. They were great to work with. And I got to know them really well. And I kind of started thinking, you know, I, I don't think they would exactly agree with everything that's in this article, even though it all came from the books. And I don't think it would be something that they would really appreciate. And so I called the new grandmaster back and I said, you know what? We really shouldn't publish this because we don't want to embarrass the Denslows or alienate them in any way. And he agreed. And so the, the, that article is now permanently put away somewhere. And the only thing I'm thinking I probably will do is that I've been invited to speak at the Chicago Masonicon in September. And I think I will probably talk through the events then as they were uh, outlined in that article. So that, if it comes out, that would be the place. So, uh, you know, maybe that's a plug for Masonicon. But I get, that's the whole story of probably the, uh, I guess I would say the worst of the conflicts that Denslow had with uh, other Freemasons, but it's very difficult to reach the heights that he did and not have some conflict along the way. Hey, Steve, one thing I, I was thinking about as you were speaking and I, as I've thumbed through these Denslow books is, you know, his relationship with Harry Truman. And you also said that Denslow was very internationally traveled because of Freemasonry and that he had documented the post-war and the uh, World War II reconstruction of Freemasonry, but what kind of influence did he have either on Truman or other leaders? Because we know Truman very much believed in Freemasonry, and, you know, I don't know what its exact influence on his presidency was, but if Denslow was one of his closest friends, I wonder what, if any, kind of influence he might have had on Truman as a politician? Well, that is hard to say. Now, there are, there are a couple things from the book that I, I could point at that, uh, Denslow, I know, tried on occasion, one in particular to influence Truman. I wrote an article about it for the Midnight Freemasons in that at some point during Truman's presidency, Denslow and a, a couple other Masons were visiting Truman in the White House, and Truman was preparing to go to Mexico. And they, Denslow, led by Denslow, they wanted Truman, from a Masonic standpoint, to try to do some things to help further unify Mexico with the United States in terms of Freemasonry, and I believe 
even more so than that, uh, the Mexican Scottish Rite with the Mexican York Rite uh, in Freemason, we where at the time there was some real friction. And Truman flat out said, nope, I can't do it. If you influenced Harry Truman, it had to be pretty subtle, and you probably had to be talking about something he agreed with anyway, but he did not want to take away from the political aspects of that trip uh, in order to take time to work those things in Freemasonry. I know for sure that Truman listened to Denslow. I know for sure that Truman truly respected what Denslow had to say, but I think it was more in, in the area of Freemasonry. As I said, they were political opposites. But, for example, when uh, Denslow was the editor of the Royal Archmason magazine and doing all of that other writing, during Truman's term as president, there came a time when paper actually became in short supply. And this is well documented. Harry Truman gave the executive order that Ray Denslow was to have all the paper he needed so he could continue publishing his articles, magazines, and Masonic works. So he had some influence on him, but Truman was a tried-and-true Democrat. Denslow was a tried-and-true Republican, and that certainly doesn't work today, and it may not have worked back then either. Steve, I remember reading some time back that, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but when Harry Truman was president, uh, didn't he give some access to the Missouri Lodge of Research that they didn't have before? I'm thinking it was like the uh, access to the Library of Congress records and things like that to help with their research. Yeah, that's exactly what he did. I don't think I could em- embellish on it much, uh, but he did see to it that they they got unfettered access to the uh, uh, Library of Congress for whatever project they may have been working on at the time. So, Steve, where do you, changing gears here a little bit, Denslow, you know, his legacy is, is long and, and I think will be with us for really the history of masonry going forward. But as influential as he was in his day, and it seemed, you know, he was writing all these things and in, in the interim period, I would say between when he stopped writing and up to the last few years, we've seen this resurgence again of Masonic education and, and the brothers that are knocking on, on the door of the lodge, this is what they're expecting. Two things. Where do you see education, Masonic education going today? And what do you think Denslow would think of the current status of the craft? Well, the first part of that, uh, since it would be my opinion, it's going to be easier to answer than Denslow's opinion, but I'll give it a try. This coronavirus thing, in a way, has been a very positive thing for Masonic education. I've been attending online meetings, and it's, I mean, I don't want to give up face-to-face fellowship for sure, but it's also kind of nice to be able to just come up here to my office and sit down and attend a Masonic meeting and not have to travel a a long way to do it or anything like that. So one thing in terms of current and the future for Masonic education is I hope that these online meetings uh, stick around. I think they're useful 
And I think it's going to get more people, more Masonic education, because we'll have more time to devote to it. And just between you and me, uh, uh, one thing I find I really like about these online Masonic meetings that I've been attending is they don't conduct any business. So we don't I understand these things are important, but we don't have to sit through the minutes and we don't have to sit through a lot of other stuff before you can get to the Masonic education, which is, you know, what we're all there for. I also think, I I don't know about your lodge, but in my lodge, we don't have a whole lot of Masonic education. They make a very good effort to have a little in every meeting, but... uh. By my experience in my lodge, five to ten minutes and you're done. So I think these group gatherings that uh, we attend and are continuing to attend, I think they're going to become more important. And we're putting together this Masonicon in Chicago in September, and things like that are cropping up all over the place. They're very popular, and I hope they continue as well. I love going to them. I really do. So I guess that's my my main thought about where Masonic education is going. What was your other question, Denslow's reaction to Freemasonry today or Masonic? Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, if, if you know, if he looked at the craft as a whole, uh, you know, if, say he's had a 60-year gap in time and he suddenly reappeared today, what would be his views or his thoughts of the current condition of the craft? My impression of Denslow was that he was as conservative with his Freemasonry as he was with his politics. You know, you have to take this. We've got more than a half a century here to talk about that. I mean, just the technology would overwhelm him, but that aside and Based on things I have read that he wrote, I think without thinking about it, uh, he would be a little disappointed that the membership is way down from what he was used to and would not think first to quality versus quantity or anything like that. Uh, I think he would be rather startled about how few Masons we have in some of our lodge meetings. I think... The Masonic education, I think he would be, I think he would like what we're doing in things like, you know, the podcasts and the Masonicons and, and things like that. And probably would not be really happy with the ritual work as uh, it exists today either. And uh, so that's about as far as I can go with what he might think about it. He would probably have, bottom line, some mixed feelings. I just want to thank Steve for doing this not once but twice. So Steve, thank you very much for accommodating us and coming back on uh, to record since we had an issue with the previous audio. Look forward to seeing you hopefully in August on your way to uh, the Indy 500 and uh, wish you nothing but the best. Well, if they so have thanks it, again. if they have it, you'll see me. And, um, we have our, I guess we have our annual lunch that we have when I'm on the, on that trip and I would look forward to that. And, uh, I just want to thank you guys for 
having me on here and uh, actually to wish you the very best with this podcast. It's just another aspect of Masonic education that uh, that's one of those aspects that I think uh, to further answer your question, uh, Denslow would be very happy to see. Todd? Well, I'm going to tell you, I learned an awful lot about Denslow. I didn't know either, so I'm sure our listeners are very appreciative of all the uh, information that you shared with them on this podcast. So thank you, Steve. Well, thanks to each one of you, too. Yeah, and Steve, let me wrap it up for this episode by just saying how glad we were to have you on here. More importantly, we're we're really glad to count you as one of our friends. Uh, The lunch for our listeners that we alluded to, Steve has came through uh, Urbana, Illinois, where Todd and Darren and I reside in that area. So we meet once a year on his way to the Indy 500. And I really look forward to it because we spent a lunch hour kind of having this same conversation, uh, not about Denslow per se, but the, the state of the craft and what we're seeing and just reconnecting. And it's, it's a lot of fun. And uh, so, Steve, best wishes till we see you again. And we do appreciate you joining us. And I hope you'll join us again, our listeners, to another episode of Meet, Act, and Park. Thank you.